Well, today I want to talk a little bit more about Martin Luther. I know last week we did this Pale Horse Rides, and that was very interesting. It talked about a lot of the, the background, the underpinning, some of the shoulders that Martin Luther stood upon, and that type of thing. But I want to talk a little bit more this morning, because this is a big deal. 500 years. Boy, it seems like they were just talking about this in school yesterday. It makes me feel old. Were you around when this happened? I wasn't around. Okay. But 500 years is a long time. And I want to address towards the end of this message the idea that some people are trying to say the Reformation is over. And when you stop and think about all that went into the Reformation, the people that were willing to give up at all costs their life, to say that it's over, to say that it's no longer necessary, that's a big statement. And so I just want to briefly look now that we could talk about Martin Luther for a long time. There's a lot that could be said, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give him justice this morning. But was he born with a silver spoon in his mouth? Did he have extra opportunities that other people didn't have? No, that's not really the case at all. He was a peasant. They, they think this is the likeness of his parents, and that's a younger Martin Luther. And he knew what poverty was like. He knew what it meant to scrape and to try and get by. His father, did he work in the mine? Is that right? Yeah. And so I imagine that Martin grew up doing a lot of those types of things as well. And his father was very reasonable. He's a very practical man. And he had his doubts about the church and whether or not it was legitimate. And so he really warned his, his children, if you will, to be very careful of the then-known church. Well, as time went on, Martin wanted to practice law. And he started off practicing law, and he got a fair ways in that endeavor until at one point, and maybe it was a gnawing on him, I don't know, but he got caught in a horrible thunderstorm. And you've heard this story before, so bad. Has anybody been in a terrible thunderstorm where it's just clapping and, and you just, you know, after the fact you chuckle and you say, oh, I was fine, it was not a big deal. But if you're in a major storm, it can really grab your attention. And so this grabbed his attention. And he felt like he needed, as a result of that, to forget law, to abandon that. This happened in 1505, and to join the monastery in response. Of course, this made his father very upset, very furious. He'd already put a lot of, of money and different things into his schooling to practice law. He thought it was a waste of his education, a waste of his life. And so it was actually two years before he and his father were even reconciled, because he so frustrated his father by joining the monastery at age 22. This is a, a picture, if you go on this Martin Luther tour over in Europe, supposedly this is the door that Martin Luther would have first entered the monastery into. And here is this Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. Did I say that right? Yeah, close enough. He's trying to correct me over there. In my southern, I'll say close enough. But this is where he lived. It looks like a nice place, I suppose. This is the monastery there where Martin Luther began his life as a monk and as a priest. And he was really laboring during that time, trying to figure out how he could be close to God, how he could be in right relationship to God, how he could suppress all of his temptations, all of his thoughts, all of these things. And if I could just isolate myself a little bit better, a little bit more, then I can somehow appease, in so many respects, this angry God that doesn't want good for me unless I can toe the line. And so this created a fair bit of guilt for Martin Luther. Well, one day in the library, he discovered a Latin Bible. 
such a book he had never before seen. For the first time, he looked upon the whole of God's Word. I mean, this was a marked time in his experience. I mean, this is a little bit crazy for us to think about, because how many Bibles do each of us have in their totality, right? And we just take for granted the fact that we have God's Word, all right here, in a language that we know and that we understand. But there, Martin Luther found, here's a book, and it's in Latin, but this is the entire Bible. And he couldn't believe it. And so he started spending every waking moment reading and studying, so curious what is in here, and learning new things all the time that are in God's Word. In fact, some sources say the Bible was chained to the wall. But he would come and study. I imagine people got to where they knew, right, where Martin Luther would be. Studying that big Bible that was chained to the wall. How many of you have to go to another place to study your Bible that's chained to the wall? But that was Martin Luther's experience. Every moment that, he could, that could be spared from his daily duties, he employed in study, even robbing himself from sleep and meals. And sleep wasn't that comfortable, and meals there weren't that good. So maybe it wasn't so big of a sacrifice. I don't know. But he loved to study God's Word. Now, I understand that Martin Luther was not perfect in any respect, and I'm not trying to make him out to be perfect. But that's a quality in him that I think it'd be good for us to replicate, wouldn't it? To have a hunger for God's word. I mean, we don't have the same issue that they had back then that the church controlled the Bible and you couldn't have your own copy and all these types of things. We have so many copies, but now the devil controls our time. He controls our schedule. He controls where we go and what we do all the time and fills it with all this busyness so we don't have time. And so in a sense, God's word is still hidden. It's just hidden next to our bed. It's just hidden beside the couch or other places. And we study it maybe some. How many of you could study God's Word over your lunch break? How many could spare some of your daily duties to study God's Word more? But we don't think that way, do we? No, that's not practical. That's not what we can be about. We don't have time for that. I mean, we'll study it some. But Martin Luther, he wanted to know the totality of God's Word. He wanted to understand for himself. That's another thing that we oftentimes do. Pastor, I, I want to understand this better. Will you study with me? Now, I'm not opposed to studying with people. But how did Martin Luther learn? He was self-taught. He just got in there and studied. And I'll tell you, it's, it's one of the joys for me to study with people that are self-taught. I mean, this is incredible. When people are so, much, so anxious for the word. In fact, I was talking to Jack Henderson. He met somebody at Lowe's. Now, Jack is on fire. If you don't know Jack Henderson, you better watch out. He was in the light bulb section. And he, he found this man named Joseph. And he says, do you know, oh, I don't work here or something. I don't know exactly how it went. Before long, Jack did what he does best. He started talking about the word of God. And this man got excited about what he heard. He got excited about uh, 
what the, the, the Ten Commandments have to say and, and how they're, they're repeated there in Hebrews and how we need to continue to, to follow and study. And so he went to his Bible study group on Sunday who, that was studying through the Ten Commandments and Moses and all those types of things. And he started to raise some questions and ask some things to the pastor and the various ones that were leading out. And the pastor said something along the lines of, uh, you've been hanging out with the Seventh-day Adventists, haven't you? And I love his response. He says, I haven't been hanging out with Adventists. I've been studying the Word of God. <laughs> and even to this, even now, and, and he's not here today because he's not feeling well, but he's at home. And he's, he's, I've talked to him since, and Jack's talked to him since. We told him about SabbathTruth.com, and he is just eating this stuff up. And so we throw out a resource, and he eats it up, and he eats it up, and he eats it up. Self-taught. Why? Because he has a passion for the Word of God. When do we ever want to lose our passion for the Word of God? When have we learned it all? I don't know. All right, I'll continue on. I'll stop. I like this quote from Martin Luther. To pray well is the better half of study. That also is one that challenges me a bit. The better half? To pray well? How about a simple prayer, and I'm going to study and then I'll pray at the end. It's called a conclusion. No, but to pray well is the better half of study. To really understand what God is trying to say. To apply it to my life. To labor with God. To pray the passage back. Anyway, to pray well is the better half of study. Above everything else, he delighted in the study of God's word. But as his conviction of sin deepened, he sought by his own works to obtain pardon and peace. He started to realize that he was a sinner in need of a Savior, but he felt like to do this, he had to put himself through the paces, if you will, through fasting, through scourging, through all kinds of other things. And we can oftentimes get off on this course as well, can't we? The idea that if I do good, I know that's not correct English, if I do well, if I do good things, God will love me. And if I don't, well, he just won't. And so I can whip myself and try and get into submission and all these things. What did Paul say? The thing I don't want to do, that I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Lord, deliver me from this body of sin. And that's how Luther felt. In fact, he says, if ever monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Meaning he put himself through anything and everything he possibly could do, and even went further on to say that if he would have done that much longer, it would have led to his own death. There was a sincerity there, but it was being pointed in some of the wrong areas and some of the wrong places. Well, the Lord brought somebody into his life just then. Johann Staupitz, I think. I'm looking at my German friend over there. Close friend who tried to encourage his troubled soul. And he said something like this, instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself in the Redeemer's arms. Trust in Him, in the righteousness of His life, in the atonement of His death. And so he started to have a bit of a turn here. So it's not my life, but it's His life. It's the life He wants to live in and through me. It's the power he wants to impart to me to overcome in those areas. But I do that only by focusing on him. 
his friend encouraged him to preach. And after much resistance, he finally yielded. And people loved to hear Martin Luther preach because he preached with passion and with zeal, with a knowledge and an understanding of God's word. And he preached in a way that was different. Different than the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, no, that's a different story. But it's similar. And so they came from a long way. This is a picture, supposedly, of this, his room is what I have listed there. Others call it a cell in that monastery where he finally realized that grace is an unearned gift. Grace. Unearned. It's a gift. And then what do I do with that grace? I don't throw it on the ground and stomp on it and do whatever I want. It transforms me. It changes me. And this grace, as it flooded over Martin Luther in that tiny cell or room, whatever you want to call it, that grace changed him. And it made him a new man with new convictions and and new desires and new aspirations to spread the good news that we're not under this law that just bears us down and almost did him in, but we're under grace. And that grace changes me. It empowers me to live for him. And so that's where it started to happen. Well, about this time, he went to Rome. He hadn't been to Rome before. And so he was excited about this trip. He wanted to see what there was to see in Rome. He couldn't just Google it. He couldn't just find a picture online. He couldn't look at a video. He had to see it for himself. And so when he was there, lo and behold, as soon as he came over the horizon, he saw Rome for the first time. He said, holy Rome, I salute thee. He traveled on foot, by the way, as monks did, staying in monasteries along the way. But when he got to Rome, he quickly was unimpressed with the wealth, with the luxury, with the magnificence, seeing monks in the costliest of robes, eating the best of food with lavish apartments. But on top of that, and probably more disturbing, was as he witnessed the indecent jokes and the profanity, even during Mass, of these clergy members. The indulgence, the debauchery within all classes, at all levels, and it shook him to his core. He says, this is not right. If these are men of God, pious men of God, this shouldn't be. There was an incongruence, and it got him thinking some more. Well, while he was there, he was going up Pilate's staircase, and you can still go there to this day. It is said that our Savior, Jesus Christ, leaving the Roman judgment hall, ascended and descended these steps. And medieval legends claim that St. Helena, mother of European Constantine the Great, brought the holy stairs from Jerusalem to Rome sometime around A.D. 326. And so there they are in Rome now, and he's going up on his knees and praying and pleading. And maybe you remember this part of the story. A verse flashes in his mind. How is it there in the first place? Because he studied God's Word. Maybe he read it. Not only read it, but memorized it. And at that pivotal moment, while he's going through this drudgery of sorts, praying up Pilate's staircase, the verse, the just shall live how? By faith. 
And it just kept ringing in his ears, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he jumped from his feet and he left in shame and horror. And it says the text never lost power on his soul. His eyes had been opened. From there, Martin Luther went to the University of Wittenberg, got his doctorate of divinity. And now as a result of getting his doctorate, he was at liberty to devote himself as never before to the scriptures he loved. That sounds nice. And so that's just what he did. He continued to study. He continued to memorize scripture. In fact, in this picture, you can see kind of this monument of sorts in the middle. It's kind of small, but here it is up closer. There's Martin Luther underneath, and there's a roof on top. Some of you, I'm sure, have been there. And it says, he had taken a solemn vow to study carefully and to preach with fidelity the word of God, not the sayings and doctrines of the popes. That was a big decision. That was a big vow. And Luther saw the dangers of exalting human theories above the word of God, but he fearlessly attacked speculation and philosophy and the theories of men. He says they don't have a place. If it's not here, there's no biblical foundation for it, and I'm not going to preach it. I'm not going to practice it. He firmly declared that Christians should receive no other doctrines than those which rest on the authority of the sacred scriptures, period. Now, this struck at the very foundation of papal supremacy. This was the core upon which the Reformation was built, this idea, the Bible and the Bible only. And again, people hadn't heard this before. And so they came by the throngs to hear him preach and teach from God's word, and it thrilled their hearts. Great Controversy 126 says, At Wittenberg, a light was kindled whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth, and which was to increase in brightness till when? Till the close of time. That's fascinating to me. That tells me the Reformation is not over. Well, the Roman church had made merchandise of the grace of God, selling indulgences in Germany. And Johann Tetzel was one of the, the premier individuals that was doing this. There's a picture of that. You have the cross, and he's got these people coming and kind of eating out of the palm of his hand, and they're scared, and they don't know what to think. And so if they pay enough money, they'll be okay. I heard somebody just the other day said, I got something flash up on my screen, and it said, a virus has invaded your computer. Unless you do these things and download this software and call this number and give us this money, everything's going to be wiped out, and here and here and here and here, and in fear. Has anybody been in a situation similar to that? In fear, you don't think logically, and you think, I better act quick, I better save the day, and sometimes you do things you regret. And so out of fear, these people were paying indulgences on this idea that that was the way forward. Johann Tinsel said this, he declared that by virtue of his certificates of pardon, all the sins which the purchasers should afterward desire, isn't that interesting, afterward it can be premeditated, doesn't matter. Afterward, desire to commit would be forgiven him. And that not even repentance was necessary. I imagine for some, maybe this was good news. I mean, I've been thinking about an affair, 
this beautiful lady. I can even pay up front, and I'll be just fine. I don't even need to repent. Mercy. He also assured his hearers that the indulgences had power to save not only the living, but the dead. That the very moment the money should clink against the bottom of his chest, the soul in whose behalf it had been paid would escape from purgatory and make its way to heaven. So just pay now. Get out your checkbooks, swipe your credit cards. No, just give us some of your gold coins. Put them in the chest, and this will ensure you and your dead relatives. Yeah, we might need to pay a little extra for Uncle... So-and-so. We know some of the things that he did. But we don't want him to be eternally lost, so we'll just put a little extra for our uncle. You've heard the phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Do we find that here? No. And this is what I think about. Anytime I go into these elaborate churches... Have you been in one? I mean, church is probably not even to say it right, cathedrals. Ornate, detail. As if they had all the money in the world. Just give us a little bit more. In Acts chapter 8, verse 18, remember this story? When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them what? Money. I want to do the same. Here, let me offer you some money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Folks, we don't purchase the gift of God. It's a free gift. And so this came at the the core of what Martin Luther had, had been coming up with in his studies. And he says, this is wrong. This isn't right. And he was preaching against it. But he wasn't getting enough of a hearing. And so his conviction said, I have to do more. Further, many of Luther's own congregation had purchased certificates of pardon. Just frame it, put it there in the dining room, I'm okay. Certificates of pardon, and soon began to come to him, their pastor, confessing their sins, expecting absolution, not because they were repentant and longing to reform, but merely on the ground of indulgence. I mean, just even the word, indulgence. Just give us a little and indulge. But Luther refused them and told them they would pay for their sins if they did not repent and reform. Some, even after going to Luther, went back to Tetzel and demanded a refund. Now, Tetzel was furious and enraged, as you can imagine. And he said he had a letter from the Pope himself that whoever denied his holy indulgences was a heretic and should be burned at the stake. So here we go. Are we going to do this? Would it be enough? to convince those closest, your friends, your family, and say, they're crazy out there, but we have the truth in here. He says, no, we have to, we have to preach this message. He told them that the grace of God could not be purchased, but was a free gift. He counseled them not to buy indulgences, but to look in faith to a crucified Redeemer who alone could give peace and joy. And again, people were coming in throngs. 
This verse, Romans 3, 23 and 24, one of his favorites, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so here's the castle at Wittenberg. It possessed many relics. And on certain holy days, people would come in mass to see them. And on those days, they could be offered full forgiveness if they came and made confession on one of those holy days. It's kind of like a good deal, if you will, on these holy days. Two for one. Come on these days and, and pay homage, if you will, on this mass, and we'll absolve everything you've done if you come on this day. And so people would come in mass. And so Luther saw this as a platform to get the word out. And you recognize these doors. On the Festival of All Saints Day, October 31, 1517, he posted his 95 theses against the doctrine of indulgences. Now, historians will tell us it wasn't just these doors. It was other places around town to try and get the word out. But this was a big statement. This was a huge statement that echoed around the world. Supposedly, this is some of the copies of what they would have seen on the doors of those 95 theses. Supposedly, these date back to the 1500s, the picture anyway. They show that the power to grant pardon from sin had never been committed to the Pope or to any other man. It was a scheme to play upon the ignorance and emotions of the people to build up their coffers and build elaborate churches. Rather, the grace and forgiveness of God was a free gift given to any and all who seek repentance and faith. And Luther believed if people just had the word of God, they would not be so deceived. It's virtually the same lie today. People have the word of God, but if people don't read the word of God, they can be deceived. And so literally the devil has come up with every possible invention to take us away from this, to put us back in the dark ages. How can you read this and say the Reformation is over? Well, it's real easy. You just don't. It's relativism. It's what you believe is truth for you, what I believe is truth for me. And it's no longer a thus saith the Lord. Within days, it spread throughout Germany. By January, his friends had translated them from Latin to German. And within a few months, all of Europe had seen them, the 95 Theses. Another quote from Great Controversy. Many dignitaries of both church and state were convicted of the truthfulness of these theses. Did you know that? They were convicted. This is truth. This is right. This is according to God's word. I can't argue with it. There's verses and passages and texts that show that he is correct. But they soon saw that the acceptance of these truths would overthrow the pontiff's throne and eventually destroy their own authority. So because of power... We can't let this get out. I believe it's true. I believe that's what the Bible says. But if we do this, we get cut off by the knees. We have to squelch this thing. And that's what they did. There were times that Martin Luther trembled himself. He was very human as well. 
Who was I to oppose the majesty of the Pope before whom the kings of the earth and the whole world trembled, the most powerful man on earth? Who am I to go up against him? No one can know what my heart suffered during these first two years and into what despondency I may say, into what despair I was sunk. You can't say that Martin Luther never feared, that he never was scared, he never doubted or or never wanted to face it. I mean, he didn't want to face these people. But deeper than that, he felt a growing conviction that I must stand on the word of God, period. And so he would pray because prayer was the greater part of his own study and he would labor with God. And at the end of that time in his prayer closet, which probably was his room, he would come forward and say, no, I have to stand on God's word. The Bible and the Bible only. And to his scripture, they had no recourse. Another quote of Martin Luther, if the work be of God, who shall stop it? I like that. If the work be of God, who shall stop it? If it be not, who can forward it? Is God ultimately in control? You better believe that he is. And so in December of that year, the bishop sent his theses to Rome to check for heresy. But it was this little invention here that really got the word out. The printing press. This was technology at its best. And because of this little device, it went around Europe. When first summoned to Augsburg, his friends begged him not to go. Sounds a little bit like Jesus, sounds a little bit like Paul. They were fearful of what he would face. They were thinking of other reformers who had died at the stake. And they didn't want that to happen to their friend. But he said this, They have already destroyed my honor and my reputation. One single thing remains. It is my wretched body. Let them take it. They will thus shorten my life but a few hours. But as for my soul, they cannot take that. So going through some of these quickly, in October of 1518, he was questioned for three days in Augsburg by cardinals. The debate largely centered on indulgences. In June and July of 1519, Luther debated with Johann Eck about whether the church had an exclusive right to interpret scripture. In June of 1520, he was threatened with excommunication if he would not retract what he had written. But by January of 1521, Pope Leo X excommunicated him. And then at the Diet of Worms, pictured above, in the spring of 1521, Luther was asked two questions. They splayed out his works before him, and they said, Are these your writings? And secondly, do you stand by them? And after taking a day to think about the second question, Luther came back and responded. And we're told that his response had everybody's attention because it was marked. In fact, if you look at this picture, it almost doesn't seem right because here is everybody important in the world, in the room, virtually. And here's Martin Luther. Everybody's arrayed to show how important they are. And here's this guy in this black cloth. Yet if you can see his face well enough, he doesn't look scared. Historians say he wasn't intimidated. He didn't speak loudly. He wasn't angry. He wasn't embarrassed. He was humble. And he spoke with conviction. He looked them in the eye. 
And there was such a marked contrast between him and his accusers that it was palpable. And so he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. We need more people to claim those words. I cannot and will not recant anything. Since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience, may God help me. Amen. Was it the Edict of Worms, 25th of May, 1521, they declared Luther an outlaw, banning his literature and requiring his arrest. They said, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic. They also made it a crime for anyone in Germany to give Luther food or shelter and permitted anyone to kill Luther without legal consequence. The church put a bounty on his head. But the Lord protected Martin Luther. He became a knight. Knight George in 1521 when he was kidnapped by the henchmen of a friendly prince and hidden for his own safety in the Wartburg Castle. Shown above. This was his room. Luther called it his Patmos. But he spent time giving the people the greatest possible gift he could give them. A German translation of the Greek New Testament. And then in 1521, Luther dealt largely with prophecy. Did you know that? His main interest was centered upon the prophecy of the little horn of Daniel 7 coming up among the divisions of Rome and applied it explicitly to the papacy. 500 years before, he says it's there. I can't deny it. He did the same with the little horn in Daniel 8 as well as the Antichrist of 2 Thessalonians 2. He identified that as the power of the papacy. He saw it. And so we asked this question, is the Reformation over? Is it time to fold? Is it time to go back to the mother church? Has the mother church changed? Or is Protestantism changing? You might remember some of these faces. Tony Palmer in the top left. Kenneth Copeland on the right. All saying, the protest is over. This happened several years ago, many years ago. And the Pope giving this special message. Let's give each other a hug. Let's complete the work. Let's look at the big picture. Virtually saying the protest is over. Come home. We can do more together than apart. This is an article here. Catholic and Lutheran churches pledged to work for shared Eucharist. The date on that is October 31 of last year. Pope Francis and the global Lutheran leader have jointly pledged to remove the obstacles to full unity between their churches, leading eventually to shared Eucharist. So here you have the Lutheran leaders, here you have the Pope, and they're they're saying, let's come together. Really? What would Martin Luther think? And the whole time, this isn't even hardly news. Right? Society doesn't care. They're indifferent because they're in the dark ages when it comes to Scripture. Here's another one just from this last week. 
1031 of 2017. Catholics and Lutherans mark 500th anniversary of Reformation. Why would the Pope spend this 500th anniversary with Lutherans celebrating? It says, to mark the occasion, the Pontiff Counselor for Promoting Christian Unity and the Lutheran World Federation on Tuesday issued a joint statement giving thanks for the spiritual and theological gifts received through the Reformation. I mean, this is craziness. Why is this happening? I believe because prophecy is being fulfilled. Does the Reformation still matter? And this article says, making his case, talking about the author, that Protestantism itself should be allowed to die a natural death. Mr. Lupfer quoted Southern Baptist megachurch pastor Rick Warren, who stated that the word Protestant itself is an old term. It's like saying, I'm a pilgrim. No one calls themselves a pilgrim or a Puritan anymore. You're hanging on to an old term. Can't we all just come together and give each other a big hug? The Reformation's over. Haven't you heard that? Have mercy. Five centuries is a long time. In another 500 years, Protestantism will either gone back to Rome or it splintered into a billion churches, according to this author. I'd like to share some prophecy with him. I don't think we're going to be here another 500 years. In the Reformation, you had sola scriptura, by scripture alone. You had sola Christo, through Christ alone. You had sola fide, by faith alone. You had sola gratia, by grace alone. And there's others, but the key word here is the word alone. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church also taught, as it does today, the importance of faith and the virtue of the Bible reading and salvation through Christ and His grace. Yet that small four-letter Latin word, sola, meaning alone, became the dividing line between reforming Protestants and Catholicism. Rome added to the requirements of salvation numerous traditions, such as praying to Mary and dead saints, repeating the rosary, confessing sins to priests, performing works of penance, paying money to release one's dead relatives from the flames of purgatory, that God's forgiveness could be obtained by purchasing indulgences, and lastly, belief in the supreme authority of the Pope as the successor of St. Peter and universal head of Christianity. These were added, and they're not here. So how can we say the Reformation is over? Friends, it's not over. It's nothing personal. It's just not biblical. Pope Francis, this is January 1, 2016. Mary is the mother of forgiveness. We need to pray to Mary. She will forgive you. I mean, Mary was a great person, but I don't see where the Bible tells us to pray to Mary for forgiveness. Pope Francis, I pray to St. Thomas more every day. Why? In 1521, Luther dealt largely with prophecy, as I had mentioned before. And he came to the same conclusion that we as a denomination have come to based on the word of God. And that is no man. It's God alone that can forgive you of your sins. It's God alone that can enable you to overcome your sins. And it's no church, it's no indulgence, it's no penance, but it's by faith alone.
2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Bible told us it would happen first, didn't it? Martin Luther said, we here are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. You know, that was a common theme of Protestantism, even until relatively recently. You get old Baptist study guides, and they study this, and they show. Billy Graham used to preach this. But where has it gone? It's not politically correct. That's what they say. And so we're not allowed to preach it. We are spiritual racists, some use that term. Or do we just want to follow God's word? Do we want to trust alone in the word of God and in the Jesus Christ of the Bible? In the last 500 years, times have changed. But friends, the Bible has not. And Rome has not. As much as it wants to convince otherwise, God's reformation yet lives. And I believe it will live until the close of time. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of it. It says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said in John 17, 17. The just shall live by faith, Romans 1, verse 17. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The just shall live by faith. I believe God's reformation yet lives. And I believe he's calling you and I to be part of it. Not to be rude, not to be in anybody's face, but to stand alone on the word of God. That people will come and flock to us for the message that we are preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. That is my hope and that is my prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to stand alone on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. On your shed blood for us, for me that we may be part of that great number when you come to take us home. Lord, we're told that when Martin Luther stood up and nailed those 95 theses, others felt the same, but they didn't do anything. Lord, may we stand up. May we stand out for the gospel, for your sake, and for our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.